counting. Let's go for a walk, he says. A walk? I say a walk-walk? You mean outside? He grins. In my condo where there are no staplers, Noof still disarming me. The phone against my ear, I hear saliva squeak between his teeth. He says, a walk-walk, would you like that? Oh, yes. Yes, when? When will we walk? Tuesday, he says, and his grin begins to fall like a sheet of paper saws to and fro the fat air to the womp of sad trombones. Tuesday. Tuesday equals today plus four days. Tuesday plus two times two days. There's a math for this. I say, all my life I've been waiting to walk outside with you. Oh, thank you. His smile is totally dead now, banana peel on the floor. Did I say the wrong thing again? He says, please, Khadija, be happy. Please, goodbye now. Click goodbye. Twilight in the condo and no lights on. My phone the only glow before it too snuffs out. In the life cycle of a vaudeville stage, this is peanut shells, piss on the ground, the entertainment gone home. First I count by days, then I count by hours. Day one, I practice walking upright in the kitchen. Day two, perfect my arm swing. Day three, grace. Thank you, I say to the bathroom mirror. Thank you, I am happy, no, very happy. No, not very, so happy, truly. Truly, yes, I am truly happy. And that was a chapter from Nurnaga's Wash's Praise, which uh, just came out in the last month or so. Although uh, book releases have become a thing harder to time. Um, and it was read to you all by Marsha Lynx Quayley. I'm Ursula Lindsay. This is episode 49 of the Bulak podcast, coming to you as usual from our uh, respective homes in Amman, Jordan, and Rabat, Morocco. And uh, we'll be talking about Noor's book of poetry, prose poetry, a uh, slightly, slightly indefinable uh, genre today, as well as, I think, more generally how a lot of us are navigating uh, reading, writing, thinking, um, coming up with new routines uh, under our current third month of uh, epidemic and confinement. Uh, so I haven't read the book. I've just read excerpts uh, and a couple very nice reviews um, and the piece that you published on the blog, Marsha, but it looks really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would just call it as Noura does a novel, um, but as she said, if she were trying to pitch it as a novel, then publishers would have very specific ideas of how a novel should behave, and this does not behave in those ways. But it has a, you know, it has a very um, a straightforward narrative about, uh, as you can see in this section, the uh, married man uh, and this. Um, uh, Khadija, he is suggesting they go on a walk walk, which includes outdoors. And she is a little bit, you know, too, too excited about that. And it also, you know, includes, there are still no staplers, parenthetically, new, still disarming me. Um, in, at one point, this, this best friend, which is the real love story of the, of the book, um, removing all sharp objects from her home. Um, so it's sort of a two, two twinned love stories the, um, with, with the friendship being the core. And it's told from the point of view of a Muslim woman who lives in Toronto, right? And a, a, a woman who's of faith, um, but whose faith is sort of challenged uh, or complicated by this extramarital affair that she's having. Right. Yes. Yeah. So her her belief and how she comes to terms with what kind of Islam, what kind of religion she, what kind of uh, relationship she has with God, is definitely a large part of it. Um, you know, the the extramarital affair is sort of a driving force moving you forward through the narrative, and yeah, the her relationship with religion is a massive complicating factor to all that. Um, and then it comes to a very beautiful end, which I didn't want to read because, of course, you know, mm. I don't want to spoil that part. 
Yeah, understandable. Um, uh, and uh, and Naga has been like so many writers promoting this because all the events to cancel the book. I mean, to promote the book have been canceled. So you covered on the blog a uh, a digital event in which she did readings and asked and answered questions, right? Right. I think she did a number because by the time that one happened, which which Phoebe Bay Carter covered for Arab Lit, um, she had expressed that she was a bit burned out on these Zoom readings. Um, so I think she did a number of online events which are becoming a larger and larger part, I think, of the literary landscape as part of, I mean, it, things sort of instantly shifted to digital in a very figure-it-out-as-you-go-along kind of way. I think Noor's events did come off. There were, I guess, around 60 people at, um, I think, that uh, that's how I remember it, um, at, at that particular launch. So, so in some cases, digital events have really, she, she reads, um, people are able to ask questions. It, it is like still an enjoyable participatory thing and people can participate around the world. Um, I, I am writing something right now about the, sh the sort of abrupt shift to online events. And a, a number of people have expressed that they think in some ways this will continue, that there'll be a kind of a hybrid but now because there is something positive <laughs> about opening up these literary events to a wider sphere beyond the city that the author is in, or, you know, when an author can't, doesn't have the budget to travel around the world with their book. Well, there's nothing to stop an, a sort of analog event from being uh, live streamed at any point, right? Like you just, it seems to me like it's just an extra layer of access that you could add on pretty easily. Right. But uh, then it's a question of, are the people online participating? So when it's this Zoom call that Noor was a part of, or some of the events that I've been part of that are online, they really are directed to that online audience. If, you know, things that I've watched before that are sort of incidentally live streamed, you're like looking on through the glass and the people who are there in person are the people who are really there. They're the people who are asking questions and participating. Um, whereas in in this case, right? I have, uh, I mean, I I I can't I I have not been to that many, and have not done that many online events. But I already am feeling quite burned out <laughs> on it, and would like to attend some in person things, which I think are invaluable and irreplaceable. Yeah, I have the same thing. I don't even go to that many uh, readings, but I sort of like, I mean, when I do, it's a different, it's a social experience. It's, it's, it's different to answer. I mean, it's like all performances in a way or gatherings of any kind. Like there's something about phys being physically close to people that gives things a different energy gives interactions like different stakes uh i also think you know writers and readers like you know l already experience books generally alone so it's like one of the only occasions to sort of like be uh, kind of you know experience it in a more collective way and it's really a pity to lose it of course Right. Yeah. And so I've been to some publishers events as well. And uh, the the one place that I've seen that is doing them pretty well, I think, is this group called it's a it turns in a Facebook group that was started called Publishers Without Borders or Publishing Without Borders. And they really encourage as much uh, non-publishing related chatter as as people like to do in addition to having these sort of more educational events. Um, mm. the, the one the one thing that I didn't like was when, when I was at one, the, uh, the moderator kept urging me to turn on my camera, which I understand why <laughs> that works better for everyone else. But, you know, whatever, my I was not ready to show my face at that moment. 
I think there should definitely be a total understanding for people wanting to opt out of being on camera. I mean, you know, we've talked about this also, like, because of the way these things are set up, you're sort of looking at yourself while looking at other Mm -hmm. people too. And that's actually extremely weird and not at all a normal human experience to like basically have like it's as if you're holding a mirror like right up to your face as you're talking (laughs) Um, uh, and like a lot of people I think don't I mean you can say hello in the beginning or whatever but as someone who also listens to like tons of radio like I feel and podcasts I guess mostly this is like I feel like there's no I don't know. It's nice to just hear people's voices and hear and overhear a conversation and, and have that kind of, uh, participation without sort of, I, I, I rarely, I don't also don't care about seeing people on camera while they talk, like just sitting in chairs talking, you know? Right. Well, I'm I think probably I, I've going to get bored. <laughs> I've seen some people saying they're going to insist in the fall that their students all have their cameras on. Uh, you know, it it you know to see an audience of people, it gives you a different energy to see people nodding back at you. Um, yeah, but it, the classroom is also, and it's I I I have to think more about that anyway. But the classroom is a different kind of space. Like the teachers literally evaluating the students on the basis also of their presence and, you know, this nebulous concept of participation or whatever, like you're not doing that with an audience at an event, you know, you have no responsibility and they have no responsibility to be there in any particular way. I don't think. Right. Yeah. Thus far, it's been very difficult for me to turn on my camera at these things because I, I do find myself then looking at myself on the screen and concentrating instead on, you know, why did I just touch my eyebrow again instead of yeah. what's going on around <laughs> me? <laughs> At, what, one thing I think is sort of, is I feel like, so it seems like uh, events have moved online very quickly. I haven't, but also it's, uh, I, uh, the, another side effect of sort of where we are right now is that one is even more kind of like disconnected. So I'm just not aware. I haven't found that bookstores have, found a quick solution in terms of like, I don't know, coming up with like a delivery logistics or promoting it so that you can easily, for example, here in, in Amman, I mean, I just moved here, so I don't know the bookstores that well, and there aren't that many, but you know, I don't get the sense that they're like delivering a lot of books or they figured out a way to sort of like share their catalog or sort of like be very active online so that people still, um, you know, are encouraged to buy books. Right. Well, I did. I, I imagine right. bookstores are suffering a lot. Yeah. I did talk to um, uh, Tahrid Najar and uh, and her daughter Selwa of uh, Selwa Books, which they have um, a, a publishing house and a and bookshop in Jordan, but it's, it's a children's publishing house. Um, and yeah, they talked about, a lot about uh how they just couldn't get books. There was a period when they just couldn't get books to people because they weren't going into the office. Um, and, and, you know, they had to give people an option. Do you still want the book once we get back into the office and are, are shipping out again, or do you want a refund on that? And then also that the Jordanian Publishers uh, Association had to do a sort of a quick uh, thing for publishers on, on ebooks and e-audiobooks because there, you know there has been up to this point a relatively low adoption of of those forms um and publishers are you know there are publishers who are sort of instantly getting creative i think and publishers who are sitting around saying well god i really hope that the fall book fairs are on otherwise um I don't know how we're going to stay in business. And it's not just their responsibility too. I mean, I I imagine this isn't like top of the list for policymakers, but like when you're like, you're talking about these rules where like, right. Distribution would be affected by like, if there's limits on circulation, which a lot of countries in the region have have put in, like you either can't drive or you can't leave your house at all. Or, you know, here in Jordan, now you can drive on alternate days. 
Um, and they did. They they told all businesses that were considered non-essential to close. But I think if you had more thoughtfulness about um, how to let certain businesses or spaces open up as quickly as possible, you know, for a single person to go into a bookstore and package a bunch of things for delivery, I, it seems to me like there's a there's ways where this could be worked out. Um, if people were, if, if, if people were paying attention, I mean, this goes into like a really, really long list in pretty much, you know, many, many countries around the world of just the response sort of, you know, leaving so many things by the wayside and being so unthoughtful about like how, um, how to try and like make this as livable as possible for everyone and how to like sort of salvage as much as possible in as smart of a way as quickly as possible. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, no, uh, if we have to let book, uh, publishing houses and, and bookstores collapse and then rebuild them, it will be much harder than if we can support things in a, in a different way on a smaller scale and then rebuild them from existing yeah. staff. Which is the concern with all sorts of things is that is that is that we're going to come out of this with like everybody who is marginalized more marginalized, everybody who is poor more impoverished, every every everything that was you know independent and and struggling, uh, uh, you know having having borne the brunt of this, um, and and I you know I just I really do think also like you have tons of people stuck at home. It seems like a time when there would be a market actually for for books and magazines and children's books and all sorts of things and where it would be like a joy to receive them in your yeah no it's like yes well uh, kenza was telling uh uh, a publisher here in morocco was telling me that uh, and and another publisher publishing consultant actually in egypt that there are book sales um but the book sales that are going on have largely also shifted genre. Like people are much less interested in sort of um, gritty realism, uh, nonfiction, difficult nonfiction about, you know, hard things going on now, such as the sort of thing that Kenza publishes. People are much more gravitating towards genre fiction, romance, uh, horror in Egypt. Escapism. Um, escapism yeah uh, and i wholly sympathize and understand and i find my reading practice is also trending in that direction not maybe not necessarily the same kinds of escapism but definitely escapism so what are you so yeah so what are you reading these days right so what well, i would say first that i'm what i'm supposed to be reading one of the things I'm supposed to be reading is, is Tasma Mort by Aziza Binabina, which uh, came out last month. And it is a translation from, from the French, uh, subtitled 18 Years in Morocco's Secret Prison about his time in Tasma Mort. And I've found, I, I can't even, I haven't opened the cover. I just simply can't. Um, things that I have been reading uh, are things that are more, playful in some way. So Noor's book, uh, things that have an experimental, a playful aspect to them. Uh, Michael Cooperson's translation of Al-Hariri called Impostures, where he sometimes kind of in a semi-ridiculous, but always fun way, takes these old maqamat uh, <laughs> and, and turns them into 50 different kinds of English. So one is um, you know, uh, in in a in an old hymn English hymn style, and one is in Scots, and one is in um, a certain kind of uh, you know Indian English, and and each of them is translated into a different style it, that is not necessarily parsable on first read, but is always enjoyable um, hmm. to hear a, sort of hear aloud in my head. Like you're, the, I see that the Scottish is open in my desk. Um, like now may I have, I, I can't do a Scottish accent. Now maestress, I had gained away to old Ruli, thence to pass in pilgrimage 
after a bunny week's work in it and coming to look like a right clarty stuck of dirt. I mean, I don't, you know, uh, it, I just like the sound of it. Um, and then I've also been reading a lot of co- uh, medieval cookbooks as well. So I guess, you know, uh, I'm trending into playful, non-serious, non-now things as much as possible. So you're not reading um, any of the kind of writing about the quarantine or like these quarantine journals that various publications have been putting out? Yeah, n- no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, people have even submitted you know, asked me, are you going, is Arab Lit going to be publishing uh, a quarantine journal uh, series? Is Arab Lit going to be doing a special issue of Arab Lit Quarterly on COVID-19? Like, oh, no, (laughs) no. I I mean, I'm sure there's an audience for those things. Uh, It's, it's just not me. I I want to, uh, I know what, you know, uh, maybe later, I can grapple with the art of this time period, but so I've enjoyed a few of those. Um, uh, I think the the New York Review of Books has a sort of quarantine journal that's like collective, and they publish like on the blog very often. And I don't read it regularly, but the things that I have read, I found interesting because they tend to be like because you're finding out about other parts of the world that you're actually not paying attention to because you're so mm. focused on what's going on in your immediate vicinity or in a few countries. Um, and so I've liked that. I mean, it's not, uh, and then I've liked the, the point, the magazine, American magazine has also had, I think a quite sort of like, they're, they're more like really essays about, uh, they have like a whole series of kind of like essays, some of about, TV shows, uh, some are about what people are reading, uh, some are just sort of about the experience of confinement, and, and some of those are just really nicely written. And some of them I have found like thought provoking uh, about the experience. Of course, there's a lot of, it's hard to say, I find, I would find it very hard to say anything like interesting about the experience, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I have nothing interesting to say about it other than let me out of here. I have been reading, I guess, uh, Mezen Carvaj's, um graphic novel journalization of of the moment because I did get so much out of reading his 2006 um, journalization of of the war in, in Lebanon at that time, and and I also, you know, it's a sort of a single, usually a single panel uh, comics style treatment, and maybe that's as much as I can handle of, you know, beyond, because uh, I'm already reading so much news coverage about. Well, that, that's the thing. That's the thing is I feel like kind of the key for me for when I started to uh, be mentally better was when I started reading less news and more just anything else. I mean, I still will like read the news once a day, but I'm not like glued to my phone the way I was for maybe the first month. Uh, which right. was just not helpful. Now I'll just, you know, like, I don't know, read the times in the morning, but then I'm not on Twitter all day long, basically. And, and I, I do find that helpful. And of course, I, I think it's helpful to read things that aren't about it at all. Uh, although the other thing I have enjoyed and sort of like everyone went and did that was like going back and reading accounts of previous plagues and quarantines and so on. And um, everybody talks about the Decameron, of course, but I went and read um, A Promessi Sposi, the betrothed, that Italian novel from um, uh, from the uh, 18th century, no, 19th century. When did he write it now? Um, uh, and, uh, and set in the 1600s. And it has this like extraordinary depiction of Milan being struck by the plague in the 1600s, which I remembered reading in high school. Mm. And, and it's, well, I mean, it's, 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 it's very powerfully written and it was weirdly actually like consoling or like, it was so interesting one to see how human nature hasn't changed in their response to these things hardly at all. So He's, he was, the writer was very, one of the, he was very uh, critical of 
the superstitions and the rumors that spread at the time of the plague in Italy. So people had these ideas about uh, the fact that they were so basically like, you know, evil witches and warlocks and so on, kind of spreading it on purpose. Right. Like they needed to believe that. They thought there were these untori, these people that went around at night and like spread the walls with some like my like thing that got you sick. Uh, and they actually like prosecuted people and like tortured people and stuff on these charges. Um, and so he's talks a lot about sort of people's irrationality. Um, mm. And and also like, of course, there's like to- like denial and obfuscation and total incompetence on the part of the authorities. Um, there's, you know, people themselves being in denial and not wanting to admit that the plague has entered the city. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's on, on the level of human response, you know, there's the same people who at first deny it, like then are the people who go on to like accuse others because they don't want to admit that they were wrong in the first place, like on the level of human nature. And then he, and he sort of shows examples of like extreme generosity and also of course, extreme, like awful behavior of people taking advantage of these families that were dying and, you know, robbing them and threatening them and, uh, at, at, and I mean, it's weird. So I just found it, it's like really fascinating. And then because it happened so long ago, he can sort of tell it in this very, you know, uh, almost clear eyed kind of like, you know, like this is a lesson sort of approach, right. uh, uh, you know, what, what can we learn from this experience? And, uh, and that one I didn't enjoy. And so I think I'm going to read the, the Defoe uh, journal of uh, of the plague, which everybody says is excellent, because I I think something about reading about these similar experiences, but are, of course are long past, and which you kind of recognize, you know, some of our behaviors, um, but also there's like this very safe distance, and they're very well written. I actually find. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I, I like I actually like it, and it's so extreme of a situation. I mean, these are even more extreme situations because you have you know a third of the city dying, right? You know, right. in their homes and on the streets in the course of a month. Uh, there's just something so like humanly dramatic about it that the story itself is so fascinating. Of like, what what do you do under these circumstances? Like, how does society respond? Yeah, so I get like that. Right. Yeah, you sound, I'm not saying you have to read it. Go, go ahead, keep on reading enjoyable, <laughs> anything lighthearted novels. Not, not like this. Yeah, no, I um, <laughs> I was talking last night on on Skype with an editor who's working on a translation of mine that is um, basically a historical fantasy novel. That it, and he was saying, oh, it was such a nice escape. And now I'm going to be re-editing the novel and escaping into that as well. There are no pandemics in this book. I, mm. I just, I, I saw that, you know, the um, Camus, um, the plague became a bestseller right. again and some other plague-related books also as well. Uh, yeah. I, I have not, um, I have, I can remember books that I've read <laughs> I have incidentally come across, of course, because many historical novels mention epidemics. They have been a large factor in, you know, human existence. But I've not gone to specifically reading about human responses to them. I just also wonder, I keep thinking, like, in the novels that are written from now on, like, how, how possible will it be to like not mention COVID-19 like it's is it is it going to become an event sort of I mean it is it is such an enormous event and one that I think it's not even just the epidemic it's what's coming after the ramifications of it yes yeah that is it going to be something like World War II where like if you set a book in this time there's just no way not to mention it like you it, it's it's so pervasive to our reality that like you're gonna have to write about it. You're not gonna have the choice. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, you're setting no, definitely. A book, you're setting a book, um, and and that I think is also gonna be really hard to to 
I mean, as a, as a, as for writers to like address, cause again, it's almost too big and you don't know what it means yet. Right. And I think probably as with so many events that changed either a specific country or, you know, more globally, such as, you know, 9-11 in, in American literature, there was so much bad grappling with it for a long time. Uh, you know, I think it, it will be hard to think about. And of course, a lot of people will want to because it's sitting right out in front of you. I, I did see I, a couple of literary agents and publishers saying, oh, God, please, no COVID-19 novels. But come on. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's right there out in front of us. Of course, people are going to write about it. There's no way of avoiding it. Um, I do find I, I've talked to a lot of writers who are simply frozen at the moment, um, who, who thought that being locked into their homes was going to be a productive time for them, and it is just not. And what what are they? I mean, is it is it that there's is it a question of concentration? Uh, is it a question of having your routine like? a certain routine forced upon you so you don't get to create your own routines? I, I'm um, not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. So I was talking to uh, Sonia Nimr, uh, who, you know, sh I believe she composed her first works while in, in Israeli prison. So she's not completely unfamiliar with the idea of being locked into a place, but that she had needed some time to work on the next book in this trilogy. And but that, yeah, maybe it, it, it's a combination of all these things and also just the uncertainty of um, what is coming next. Yeah, I would imagine. And practicalities also, because I think it's it's hard to do anything creative if you're worrying about rent. Right. Uh, or, you know, if all your side gigs that you actually support your writing with have have dried up. Um I, uh, I think I wasn't able to do any of my legislative reporting writing for at least a month. Um, also like if you're suddenly taking care of children, like everything yeah, is different. You have to, you have to come up with a different, uh, I mean, that said, I feel like it could be a form of it. Of course your work can be a form of escape and it can be like, I can imagine how it would be very enjoyable to think about something entirely different, to think mm. about the problem of your writing in that a way that it, that it absorbs you, you know, and, and doesn't give you time to think about any, uh, you know, about the news or about what's going on. Um, like yeah, I, I have seen it on something. Right. I have seen writers who are productive. I mean, I was reading something, Yes, what Abdel Latif wrote uh, a few days ago while in semi-lockdown, and it was beautiful. Uh, I, I personally, this is the first period when I have asked a couple of, <laughs> I've asked a couple of publications for extensions on, on pieces that I was supposed to turn in. I'm, you know, I'm normally a very boring quotidian. You gave me a deadline, I turn in on or before the deadline. But just my brain was just blown up into a thousand pieces. I don't know. And, and I, and, but I'm also extremely anxious about uh, turning things in and getting invoices out there, feeling the number of layoffs that I've seen in, in journalism, the number of new writers who are possibly entering the world of freelance increasing. And then also I've been told by places that I normally write for, that they won't be able to commission freelance pieces in the coming period because there will be budgetary cutbacks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, if, if we can assume that some part of literary writers also live this kind of lifestyle, <laughs> freelance lifestyle, it's an anxious time. As it, you know, yeah. as for, I get, you know, for Americans in general with unemployment, I think it's sort of generally an anxious time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, 
the so far in a way people that do the kind of work that we do have had the incredible good luck of being able to stay home and do it uh the bigger question is how much of that work will how much the existence of that work will diminish in the coming years you know right. Right. Just, just out of just out of the general contraction of of economies and like right and a piece that you were used to be paid two hundred you'll be paid one hundred one hundred to fifty <laughs> fifty to ten dollars a piece etc yeah um, well I mean I think <laughs> I don't know I don't really don't have an answer for this uh, my philosophy is just for the same it's my same it's my approach to covid as well is just like day by day week by week month by month like right, right. i'm not even going to try to uh, sometimes i think i'm like abdicating a responsibility to think more seriously about what's going to happen politically and economically and so on that i should be sort of like i don't know but how do you plan for it i i just don't know um and and we have so little control right now it feels like over how this is being managed uh that it it's very hard to kind of like you know organize or even think about organizing i mean right and yeah no i definitely you can't step out of your house because the moroccan government has 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 this incredible, really, really strict lockdown where they're only letting one person per family like go out. And you require a pass, which explains the three reasons why you're allowed out on the street. And if you get to a checkpoint, you must explain to the police why you're out, um, which de facto has meant that we are in the apartment all the time. Yeah, which is a whole other, I mean, like, the relationship that one has to various spaces and the, and the way that that plays into your like ability to think and to Mm. work, Mm. I think is obviously something we've all been thinking about a lot. Uh, The, the need to sort of like, I feel so much the need to be in spaces that are not, that do not belong to me and don't reflect me back at myself and aren't full of my belongings you yes. know what I mean? Like yes. to be in yes. neutral spaces where it's like freeing to your mind because everything around you isn't isn't yours to deal with. You just happen to be there. You're just moving through. Um, I, I I really miss that. Uh, and of course, you know, other people and so on. Uh, <laughs> other human beings. <laughs> it would be great to see somebody. <laughs> I mean, so I should say, you know, if we're talking about the general situation in the region, so, so here in Jordan, they've actually, you can go out, you can go for walks, you can now drive your car on alternate days. Um, They are slowly reopening the economy. Everybody wears face masks. Um, uh, But, you know, everybody's also still kind of practicing social distancing. Um, And... uh, and the country itself, the, the the lockdown in Jordan is not the is not to be locked into your house, but you're locked in the country. Like the country itself has shut all its borders and does right. not is not probably going to open them for a long time because they actually have very few cases. They seem to have done a good job at catching it early and tracing it and so on. And every little outbreak, they like shut down you know neighborhoods and. But so the the only way they can maintain that though is by like really tightly controlling their borders. So I'm in Jordan for the indefinite, like again, day week by week, month by month, who knows, but I'm here for in a way that I have never been anywhere, like with no yeah. exit. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that is pretty common feeling globally, particularly among people who live in a country that they weren't, born in you know uh, right uh, egyptian friends of mine in canada are like oh my god when am i going to get back to egypt I, I i don't feel the need to leave morocco but i would like to be in a different city or a different street or something uh but it, you know it does yeah. of course uh i am relatively used to you know going to a book fair in a different uh you know in abu dhabi or seeing what's going on in in a different place 
hearing about different things. It's- right. Well, the other thing I'd say for how this relates like specifically to, to work is that I do feel um, that I'm less aware of what's going on. Like I'm reading fewer new books because I think publishers are mailing them less. Of course, there's no events. You also don't just run into somebody and have a conversation where they mention a couple books. Of course, you're not just walking by a bookstore. So all of the, that little like kind of like attrition that gives you ideas mm. uh, isn't isn't there anymore. So I kind of feel like I have fewer, uh, <laughs> not fewer thoughts, but fewer like speci- work specific ideas of like, oh, I want to. Right. Yes. You know, no, I, I have fewer. Seren- right, about this. right. No, fewer serendipitous moments. You know, I go out and I research and look for and try to find out what's going on in these particular things, but I don't just run across something. I just don't happen to be in front of a bookstore and see, oh, look at that. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, I even find like, I was reading an issue of the New Yorker the other night and I was like, it's not that good right now because I feel like the reporters can't go anywhere. (laughs) Mm. And like, there's something missing. Like, I don't know. It's either pieces written about something that happened a long time ago, or I I don't know. I, I felt like, Oh, there's a, there's a flavor of journalism. That's a little bit not there because I think, you know, the reporters themselves can't be on the scene. Right. It's totally different to be doing it all by phone, email, etc. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember which publication I write for. I got this email from, I think it was Al Jazeera. Uh, you know, <laughs> talk to your editor about tips of how to go on doing stories without leaving your home. Like, ugh. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like nightmare, nightmare, frankly, because <laughs> because... Because as much as I love staying at home, which I love, but one of the things that I really have always enjoyed about journalism is as somebody who would stay at home all the time, being actually forced to go out there and then having all these kind of great discoveries, like having a reason to go places that otherwise you have no reason to go. Yeah, and, no, being forced talk- outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Otherwise, here yeah. I am in um, my comfort zone all the time. Yeah. Yuck. I don't like it. Um, and then, yeah. And, and you know, while everybody's struggling with this, I just have to get in just like uh, uh, since we're sort of talking about the overall, you know, management of the situation, uh, how by just complete, almost you can hear I'm almost speechless with like anger that the Egyptian authorities in a country that is mm. probably facing a giant epidemic rolling in right now are taking time out to arrest, um, you know, journalists and activists and poor like 22 year old girls with TikTok. TikTok yes, exactly. God. Uh, I mean, and uh, and of course, not letting prisoners out of jail. Allah Abdel Fattah has been on a, a hunger strike for a month now. His mother and his aunt and his sisters are not allowed to bring him a letter, get a letter from him, bringing some hand sanitizer. Nothing. Um, the you know the ways in which I mean, of course, we knew all this about this regime already, but that they are able to spend any time on this to focus on this uh when there's literally an existential crisis and and the same goes for you know the american government you know uh the american administration too like uh it's just we're just what we already know is being further revealed you know um of of how of how you know despicable uh these people in power is uh, focus on their self-interest is of how incapable they are of like uh, being, uh, you know, fair in any way. But uh, I, I mean, the just this egregious, egregious uh, misuse of of police and judicial resources to continue to put more people in prison where they are all going to get sick. 
um, in a country where the public health response has been, you know, really, really underwhelming. I, I just, uh, that's, that's one of the things that's, uh, been on my mind, I would say. Uh, yeah. So and then like, to I see can't it, avoid all news. Right. <laughs> right. And then to see Lena, uh, Atala of the, the uh, chief editor of Moda Masur detained again for talking to Leila Swift outside of Torah prison uh, during Leila's uh, sort of protest slash waiting to be able to deliver supplies to Allah. Yeah, the the government's sort of razor focus on the absolute wrong things is stunning. Well, from there, but I mean, or or their focus is, I mean, you know. You think about dystopian literature, but then there is, you could not exaggerate how like life hating these regimes are. Like it is, it is that they don't want young people uh, to have any fun. I mean, I'm still thinking about the, also these, these young couple young women who are, you know, now in jail because they had popular accounts, you know, Dressing uh, up like a shark young. and singing things is apparently because because bad. they don't, but it's that they had some form of self expression they had some form of communication they created some you know digital community and 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 it's like no nobody can speak nobody can have fun nobody can say anything nobody can dance in their living room nobody like all of you just basically shut up and die like it it. it it, you can't exaggerate really how right. hateful the this 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 vision is like uh and then of course i think there's you know misogyny layered on top of it in these particular cases because they're attractive mm. young women you know who thus but, must uh, be corrupting other young women yeah 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 no and and i, mean, I think on a positive note, I think this is one of the main things that I've taken from the example of Mother Masr, which is to resist it by making spaces for fun, for making spaces for enjoyment, for play, for experiment, uh, for, for things that don't need to happen but are enjoyable anyway. I feel like we should just end right there before I say something <laughs> else really dark. <laughs> well, so one of the things I've been working on with um, Kevin Blankenship is this um, uh, poetry translate Arabic poetry translation challenge. Oh, I loved that. Which is, you know, there was some grumbling, I think, from the academic translation folks who are like but that's not literally what the what the poem says this word doesn't mean that um but, but this the, is the first time you do it right yes yeah the last week was the I, first and now we have a second one up now but we're gonna run them you, at least through june and you literally gave like a one line of poetry of classical arabic poetry right right and yes and then people could just respond and translate it. And you got all sorts of some, you know, brilliant, funny, like sometimes jokey, uh, uh, but like really, I know I really liked it. Had you been thinking about doing this for a while? Uh, Kevin has been posting little translation challenges on Twitter for a while and just tagging in like 6,000 people. Uh, we just thought that this might be an easier format for people to participate because now it's in one place. You can come see it. You can respond in all these different platforms. And then, so Tuesday we post the new challenge and then Saturday we post a roundup of, of, of people's different responses, different ways of playing with the words. And then there'll be different hosts. So Rachel Shine is going to be next week's host. Um, Elliot Cola has agreed to be a host as well. Um, so, you know, we'll see different po poems from different eras, all public domain poetry, I think, uh, and playing around with it. And, you know, you can respond, you can incorporate a GIF into your, into your translation, you know, go, please, uh, I go crazy, have fun, be playful.
Yeah, I thought that was a lovely idea. Also, because I've seen in the past, just sort of like translators I know kind of like informally engage in this, like, mm-hmm. you know, throw something out and then you see them kind of like send each other and, you know, back and forward, different ways of doing it. And um, that's that's so the way, and in my opinion, kind of the only way to really kind of discuss or like experience translation is is by seeing it in practice, right? By seeing it happen. Like right. I've been to I've been to too many lectures about the practice of translation where somebody will talk for a really long time about translation in a kind of abstract way and there won't be a lot of examples. Like right. they won't right. be actually they won't be actually and it's a little bit as if somebody talked to you about music for an hour and didn't play any snippets <laughs> like like the only way that I and then it went but when there's an example I'm immediately engaged like I mean you're immediately you know interested because it's con it's concrete and 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 you're and you're and you're you have a response immediately to the choices that have been made right and then you see another variation and it just you know, but, but I feel like that's, that's the way to do it. So it's, it's neat. Yeah. And I, I think it, you know, it also broadens the community of, so I, I've seen say Robin uh, Mosher and Yasmin Seal and Yusuf Racha batting around different uh, pieces of poetry back and forth. And, and how would you move this from Arabic to English? But this really, I, I think, I hope, you know, it can expand that also, people are translating into different languages, um, West Flemish, Greek, uh, Italian, of course, and Spanish. Uh, but I would love to see an expansion of that. And I think that also changes how we see the poem, if we can hear the sound of it in different languages, see how it, it renders differently, uh, you know, just makes you engage differently with both the translation process and the poem itself, uh, and and I'm not suggesting, you know, some sort of um, we should all never be faithful to the poem anymore and just translate it however you want. But in, in this instance, yes, this is meant to be playful. And if somebody runs with the text in a way that they're expressing it, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, there were some people definitely who did that. Um, now, of course, I can't quote the examples, but there were some that like took quite a, took quite some liberties. Yes, and I think I did get some um, rebuttals in in email about this. Not this is not translation. Uh, oh, boo! Come on. <laughs> I think we can have we can have that debate after the series is over. Okay, for now we're yeah, just but also playing. like obviously it's not. I mean, like you know, you're not. It. I, I don't know. Especially, and also, if you want to say something, just like respond. Don't like go appeal to you. <laughs> like, what do <are> you? <laughs> oh, um, well, I guess maybe we should uh, wrap it up there for today. What do you? Yeah, think? on that semi-positive note. I mean, look, that's a victory. Getting there. <laughs> <I'm>, uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. It's great talking to you as usual. Lovely talking to you too. Take care. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.